But let's open our Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke as we return here to our journey together. Uh, Luke chapter 6 is where we are, and we're looking together this morning at verses 12 through 16. Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 12, and we'll read down through verse 16 together. The title of the message is Ordinary People, Extraordinary Purpose. Ordinary People, Extraordinary Purpose. Let's look together at God's Word, would you please? Luke chapter 6 and verse number 12. In these days, he, that is Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Well, as we continue our journey through Luke's gospel this morning, we come to a brief section where Jesus formally chooses 12 men to be his official representatives. They will be set apart from the rest of his followers and intimately prepared to lead the gospel ministry of Christ after his death, resurrection, and ascension back to heaven. These 12 men that we read of here in Luke 6 are essential not only to the gospel narrative in which we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but also to the formation of the church during the first century, which we see taking place in the book of Acts. Now, each of these 12 men, except for Judas, the traitor, who was in Acts chapter 1 replaced with a disciple by the name of Matthias, Uh, each of these 12 men were the instruments by which the gospel was spread and the church began to grow throughout the world. These were the people who were closest to Christ during his earthly ministry. And just having a simple profile of who they were helps us to see the pattern by which Jesus continues to choose ordinary people to carry out an extraordinary purpose. And so I want us to look together at these ordinary men as we take a glimpse at this passage of Scripture together. First of all, I want you to see there's three things to note this morning. Number one, uh, Jesus prepared prayerfully over the selection of his apostles. That's the first thing that we see in our text. Jesus prepared prayerfully over the selection of his apostles. Uh, Look again, if you would, at verse number 12. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, all night, he continued in prayer to God. And then when day came, he called his disciples and chose from the 12 whom he named 
apostles. So here we see Jesus continuing all night in prayer. Now, the question might arise in our minds as to why Jesus prays at all. After all, isn't he God? And if he's God, why does he have the need to pray? Well, this is one of the unique dimensions of his incarnation. He's praying, first of all, because of his earthly purpose. And his earthly purpose is to do the will of his heavenly Father. Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 30, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's his purpose. That's why Jesus, the forever existing son of God, came to this earth. He came for one purpose, to do the will of his father. So this selection of men was the expressed will of God through Jesus. And in his humanity, Jesus seeks the will of his father and then proceeds to choose the exact people whom God had willed for him to have. However, because he is God, I also believe that this prayer was for the men he had determined to choose. One of the most comforting truths about Jesus is the fact that he prays for us. He prays for his people. He prays for those whom he chooses. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 17 and verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I'm praying for them, Jesus says. He was praying for Matthew. He was praying for Peter. He was praying for Judas, the son of James. He's praying for those whom God had given to them. And let me remind you this morning, he continues to do that today. Romans chapter 8 teaches us that Jesus is right now, after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he now found his place seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And what is he doing there? Well, in addition to holding the whole world together in his hand, he is also interceding for us. He is praying for us. So, so not only was he on that mountain that day calling out Peter and James and John by name. He is also at this moment calling you out by name. Think about that. Whatever's in front of you, whatever you're facing, God in his incredible power, in his incredible essence, it's hard for us to fathom it because we're not God. So we don't know how all of this works in the mind of God. But at the same time, Jesus is praying for me. He's calling my name out in prayer. We think he's calling Brian's name out in prayer. No, all of those whom he has chosen, those who belong to him, he prays for us. But let's not miss an important part of this. Jesus is our Savior, but he is also our example. 
He is our example. In fact, Scripture says we should follow his steps. And so monumental was this decision in the plan of God that Jesus was compelled to pray all night before selecting his apostles. I don't know if you've ever prayed all night before. But to do so is a demonstration of intense perseverance that is rooted in the conviction of divine dependence. Let me say that again. To pray all night in the way that Jesus is praying here is a demonstration of intense perseverance that is rooted in the conviction of divine dependence. He needed to know the will of his Father. He only wanted to do the will of his Father. He was completely dependent upon God. You see, Jesus' pattern of life involved a commitment to prayer. Prayer was necessary to Jesus. It was essential to him that although he is the eternal son of God who created all things and holds it all together in his hand, he could not live his human life apart from prayer. Now, the challenge is inescapable, isn't it? If the perfect Son of God placed prayer at such a high priority in his life, then how much more is it essential for the adopted children of God? That's who we are. We are the adopted sons of God, the adopted daughters of God. And if the pure Son of God felt the need of prayer, then why don't we pray? How come there are few moments in our life lives that are marked by all night praying? Monumental moments in our life that are such a massive implication in knowing and doing the will of God that we express total dependence upon him for his guidance and direction. You see, it is arrogance. Arrogance to see here Jesus' necessity for prayer, but then go and reject it for ourselves. Jesus didn't say in John 15, 5, that apart from me, you can do something. No, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Jesus prepared prayerfully over the selection of his apostles. Secondly, notice with me that Jesus chose common, ordinary men. Jesus chose common, ordinary men. They were ordinary in every way. People like you and me. Now, obviously, today where we sit in terms of history, they are known to us. But when Jesus chose them, they were very much unknown people. All of them, except for Judas Iscariot, were Galileans. Well, what's the big deal about that? Well, they were country boys. That's who they were, country boys. 
None of them were rich, highly educated, or well-connected socially. None of them were scholars. None of them were priests. None of them were elders in Israel. And politically, they were all over the place. One was a radical zealot intent on overthrowing Rome with a sword himself. And then another one was a tax-collecting Jewish employee of Rome. This is quite a group of people. They were remarkably ordinary, fascinatingly diverse, motley crew of people. They were nobodies. Nobodies. But fortunately for them as well as for us, God's favorite instruments are nobodies. You see, it's our nothingness, if that is a word. It's our nothingness. It's, it's our ordinariness that God chooses to use in order to display his great power. Paul teaches us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, consider your calling. Consider the fact that Jesus has called you because not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, nobility. No, in fact, he says, here's whom God has called. God has called the foolish of the world. He has called the weak in the world. He has called those whom are low and despised. He has called those who are nothing, nothing, nobodies. And why has he done this? To bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 30 that everything you are today in terms of Gospel recognition is all because of him. It's all because of him. He chooses the foolish. He chooses the low, the despised, the nothingness of this world, the nobodies of the world, so that the one who boasts will always boast in the Lord. Oswald Chambers said it like this. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies. Because their unusual dependence on him made it possible to uniquely display his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural ability and resources. Who were these nobodies? These 12 ordinary men. Well, verses 14 through 16 list them by name. We have Peter. Peter's the leader. He's the one that we like to call the disciple with a foot-shaped mouth. <laughs> then you have his brother, Andrew. Andrew was uh, what some would call the, the administrative disciple. He valued people. He valued details, however small they were. It was he who brought Peter to Christ. It was he who recognized the little boy with the lunch of bread and fishes that Jesus used to feed the people. We have James. Now, James was an intensely 
zealous individual. He and his brother John were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, right? And some of you have glimpses of Thor in your mind right now. I'm not sure if they looked like that, but they were certainly intense, zealous people. And then we have his brother John. John is known as the disciple whom Jesus loved, but that was not his natural disposition. He also, like his brother James, was an intensely zealous, passionate, high-strung individual. But his closeness to Jesus sanctified him to the point that he learned how to love people the way that Christ loved them. Yeah, Philip. Philip was also a gifted administrator. We have Bartholomew mentioned here. He's also mentioned in other passages as Nathaniel. Don't, don't, don't view this as contradictions because oftentimes in these days, uh, the Jews went by dual names. That's why we have Simon, who's also called Peter. We have Bartholomew, who's also called Nathaniel. We have next, Matthew, who's also called Levi. All right, so in some texts, you're going to see Nathaniel. Sometimes, like here, you're going to see Bartholomew. This, this gentleman was always faithful, always faithful. Then you have Matthew, Levi, who was the former tax collector. Thomas is next on the list. Thomas went by two names as well. He was called the twin, the twin. Now, the reason why they called him the twin is because many scholars believe that his resemblance was strikingly close to Jesus himself. And so they called him the twin, Thomas. Now, Thomas is what we would call an enigma. In certain passages of Scripture, we find him extremely courageous. And then in other passages, we find him extremely fearful and anxious. Now, I'm not sure if we would call him enigmas as much as we would call him a perfect representation of many of us. Then there's James, the son of Alphaeus. He, he was one of these individuals that served in the background. We don't know really hardly anything about him at all. He was just a disciple who was there. He was present. God chose him, but he was always in the background. We have Simon the Zealot. Man, this guy was tough-skinned, always opinionated, always had something to say, always something he wanted to do. The, the zealot portion here was the fight, fact that he was, a, he was a person always looking for a fight, uh, essentially uh, or especially against the, the Roman Empire. And we have Jude, the son of James. Again, here's another one of those names. We find him called in some passages Judas, but not Judas Iscariot. We find him in some passages called Jude, the son of James. We also find him also mentioned by the name of Thaddeus, all right? Uh, this is the guy with uh, three names because his parents couldn't figure out what to call him. So Thaddeus, Jude, Judas, same guy. We understand him to be a tender-hearted individual. And then we have Judas Iscariot, who we know infamously as the hypocritical traitor. Now, why, why do we take the time to, to point out these different personalities and characteristics of the men? Because we need to know that this is how God chooses to build his church. He doesn't pick always the smartest and the wisest and the noblest. He picks people like this. He brings together people with different personalities, different occupations, different politics, and he unites them under one mission, the mission of his gospel. He calls unlikely people, and he equips them to serve him. And friends, that should both encourage us and humble us. It should encourage us because he chooses weak, ordinary nobodies. Thank God for that. 
Thank God that he allows me to be a part of his work. Someone who's weak in this world. Someone who's ordinary. Someone who's a nobody. But this should also humble us. Why should it humble us? Because he chooses weak, ordinary nobodies. And the day we begin to think that we are somebody or something or, man, God, I'm glad you chose me because I can really be a valuable asset to your mission. Oh, that's the day that our lives are in spiritual danger. It should humble us when we begin to think anything good of ourselves. The fact that I am here being called and drawn by the power of the gospel is because God viewed me as a weak, ordinary nobody. That's all of us. We're weak, ordinary nobodies. This is whom God has chosen to build his church. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, we have this treasure that is the ministry of the gospel. That's the treasure that he was referring to. We have this treasure, the, the ministry of the gospel, in jars of clay, all right? In jars of clay. What are jars of clay? Ordinary clay pots, all right? Nothing fancy. Not, not the uh, china dishes uh, that are sitting in your mom's dining room at home that you're not allowed to use. You can only look at them, all right? That's, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about ordinary Clay pots, the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of the gospel God has chosen to put inside ordinary clay pots. Now, why is he using this imagery? Because this was an ancient custom. Instead of expensive vaults, you would take valuables, treasure, put them in rugged, ordinary clay pots, and then bury them in the earth, all right? That's what they would do. And the illustration here is that the gospel is the treasure and weak, ordinary humanity are the jars of clay. And why does he do this? He goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he does this to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That is, God chooses common, ordinary people to possess his gospel and to serve his gospel so that the power of the gospel will be seen as God's power and not man's power. He chose common, ordinary men. I want to give you this third and final point this morning. And that is, Jesus intimately trained his apostles for an extraordinary purpose. Right? He, he prayed, he prepared prayerfully over the selection of these apostles. He chose then common, ordinary men. And then we discover that not only here in verse 13, but also through the rest of the Gospels, that he intimately trained these apostles for an extraordinary purpose. Look, look at verse 13. He's telling us here this is a Gospel purpose, a Gospel purpose. That's the extraordinary purpose. It's a Gospel purpose. Now consider the word apostle for a moment in verse 13. He chose these disciples to be apostles. This Greek word used for apostle here means sent one, messenger. It carries the notion of being an official ambassador, an official representative of another. This was the purpose, okay? He chose out of all the disciples that were following him at this point, 12 men to be his official representatives, 
And with that responsibility also came the power and authority of Jesus in their lives. They would speak. They would preach. They would minister with the authority of Jesus. These ordinary men, they were given an extraordinary, an extraordinary purpose. Official ambassadors of Christ. Official representatives of Jesus. Men who will go out and carry with them the extraordinary authority and power of Jesus. But before they could embark on such a monumental task, they first had to be trained. And this is how Jesus spent the majority of his earthly ministry. Not preaching to the masses. No, the majority of his time was spent intimately training these 12 apostles. Now, let's not forget, as we're thinking about Jesus training these men, let's not forget what he was working with. He was working with people like you and me. Common, ordinary people. People who were not only nobodies, but people who were also sinners. Think about it. This group of people that Christ has chosen are thick-headed, big-mouthed, inconsistent, fault-filled men who often didn't get what Jesus was trying to teach them. That's who they were. In fact, Jesus even nicely called them one day slow learners. In other words, they had a bunch of dummies is what they were. Slow learners. In fact, let me read it to you, Matthew 15, 16. He looks at them in exasperation one day and says, are you still without understanding? <laughs> you still not get it? Is it still not clicking what I've been trying to tell you about what I've come to earth to do? That was the whole context of it. He would say in Luke chapter 24 and verse 25 to them, this is after the resurrection. He said, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. You see, they were chosen for an extraordinary purpose, but they were by no means perfect men. They lacked spiritual maturity. Their pride often got the best of them. They struggled with faith. Their commitment caved under pressure. And they were often given over to fear and anxiety. These are the men Jesus chose. The men, think of it, he was committed to. The men he was committed to training for the specific purpose of progressing his kingdom. Now, I want to say something very clearly as we wrap this up. Training this motley crew from a human standpoint was not easy. However, Jesus was patient with them. He was perfectly patient with them, just as he is patient with us. When you take a deep dive into the manner by which Jesus trained his disciples, it'll not only bring comfort to how he works in your life and in my life, but it'll challenge you also in how you train others. It challenges me as a pastor in front of my parishioners. It challenges me as a parent in regards to my children. Jesus patiently, perfectly patiently took time to train. 
those whom he had chosen. Think about it for a moment. When they lacked spiritual maturity, you know what Jesus did? Jesus just kept teaching. He just kept teaching. He didn't give up. He didn't say, I picked the wrong class. Y'all need to go back to a grade level down. No, 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 no. He kept teaching. He, he, was, he was persistent. He was repetitive. He just he kept teaching them over and over and over again. When their pride got the best of them, you know what he did? He humbly modeled servanthood. He showed them what humility looked like. He even at one moment got down on his knees and did slaves work. He washed their feet, their dirty, crusty toes going every direction, feet. The Son of God did that. They were prideful. They were arrogant. These nobodies, immediately when Jesus called them, felt like they were somebody. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to sit next to you in the kingdom, Jesus? And Jesus gets down and shows them humble, dirty, nasty work. When they struggled with faith, he kept doing powerful works in front of them. He kept declaring his glory in their midst. When their commitment caved under pressure, when all of them, all of them deserted him the night he was arrested, what did he do? He prayed for them. He forgave them. He met them on the beach a few days later and restored them back to ministry. That's so challenging to me. It's challenging to me when I think about how patient he was, how quick he is to forgive, how he's willing to restore anyone who falls away from their commitment to Christ. And when they were overwhelmed with fear and anxiety, he kept emphasizing the promises of his word. He kept emphasizing the ministry of his Holy Spirit. My point is this, church family, look right here. He never gave up on them. Just because they were imperfect men who were filled with many faults and failures, he committed himself patiently to those whom he chose. And this ought to encourage every disciple in this room this morning. He is not looking for perfect people to make a gospel impact in this world. He just wants imperfect people, weak, ordinary, common men and women like you and I. And he's not going to give up on you when you're slow to learn when you're struggling to trust, when you're falling short in your commitment to Christ. Jesus chose these apostles for what they would become under his lordship, not for what they were at the time that he called them. Don't quit. Don't give in. Don't throw in the towel. He is still doing a work in your life. I've shared this on a couple of occasions, but it's been a while, so if you've heard me say it before, just uh, tune out and we'll get back to you here in a moment. I think it's so fitting for our understanding of how God does his choosing. Here's a resume of the disciples in the form of a memo to Jesus, the son of Joseph, from the Jordan Management Consultants. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. 
All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we've not only run the results through our computer, but we've also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and our vocational aptitude consultants. The profiles of all tests are included, and you will want to study each of them carefully. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background education and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They don't have a team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for people of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter, for instance, is emotionally unstable. And he's given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interests above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine the morale of everyone else. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew had been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. The point is, is that the world doesn't see us the same way Jesus sees us. And hanging over your life today is a sign that reads this. Work in progress. For when Jesus saved you, he began a work in you. A work of training you. Training you to become like him. He trains you through his word. He trains you through sufferings. He trains you through your children. When he saved you, he began training you so that you would carry out his extraordinary gospel purposes in this world. All you need to do is follow him and let the master do his perfect work. Stop suggesting to him how to train you. Stop asking him when he's going to be finished. Let him do his work. You know, it's amazing to see what this ordinary group of common people did for the gospel, especially after the ascension of Jesus. The training Jesus gave them was far more valuable than any seminary education that you and I could receive today. For the foundation of the church was built upon these ordinary men whom God empowered to carry out an extraordinary purpose. All right, two quick thoughts, and I am going to pray. Because you thought I was going to do that 20 minutes ago. You can read a list of the disciples, not only in Luke, but in Mark and in Matthew. Here's something we notice with every one of the list. First of all, Judas is always at the bottom. He's always at the bottom of the list. Perhaps, perhaps, as a reminder... 
that no matter how close a person gets to Christ, he can still be lost. You see, Judas is the epitome of a wasted opportunity. He was with him every day. Saw everything that he did. Heard every word that he said. And still in his heart could not make him Lord. Now the second thing we notice is that Peter is always on the top. Peter. And perhaps that's a reminder that no matter how you may have wrecked your spiritual life, you can still be a rock in Christ's purposes. Through repentance, Peter was compassionately restored to his role after a monumental failure of denying Jesus. There's so much we're going to see from these group of men in our ongoing study. But may God help us this morning to at least see his kindness, God's kindness, in choosing common, ordinary people like us to carry out extraordinary purposes for him. We simply, by faith and repentance, need to follow him. Let's stand together for prayer.